Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Eight years into a regional partnership to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, environmentalists are looking at what's next. It's actually been so successful that people are starting to say now, okay, we've done a a pretty good job as it relates to the power sector. What other areas of the economy do we need to talk about? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We'll peer into the future of REGI, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, and what the shifting political environment might mean for the fight against carbon emissions. We'll also dig into a new study about plans to expand natural gas capacity in New England. We'll head to the farm to find out what's really worrying the people who are working the land. The number one issue facing farmers was the cost of health insurance. They identified that as the biggest threat to their farm. And what happens if the Affordable Care Act goes away? We'll find out. And we'll go to the top of a mountain in a state not known for mountains to experience the thrill of ski jumping. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, environmentalists are wondering about the impact of the new Trump administration on regional partnerships to reduce greenhouse gases. We'll take a closer look. But first, farming New England's rocky soil can be grueling work, and earning an income relies on many factors beyond a farmer's control, from the weather to global price fluctuations. But one lesser-known challenge that many farmers face is access to affordable health insurance. VPR's Kathleen Masterson reports that a University of Vermont researcher is studying just how health care policy affects farmers trying to grow their businesses. Taylor Hutchinson and Jake Mendel fell in love with farming and each other on a small educational farm out in California. When the two decided to take the plunge and start their own farm, they decided to head back east to where Jake grew up. Over the past three years, they've transformed three acres of his family's land in Starksboro into a small farm business, selling vegetables, eggs, and some meat through a CSA. Access to free land puts them well ahead financially of many starting farmers. But one thing they didn't initially factor into their business budget was health insurance. We both came of age at the beginning of the Affordable Care Act. It's not something that we've really had to think about paying in full for a health insurance plan. That's Jake Mendel. By coming of age, he means he aged off his parents' health insurance at 26. He kept that coverage beyond college under provision in the Affordable Care Act. Then Mendel switched onto a heavily subsidized plan through Vermont's health insurance exchange. His partner, Taylor Hutchinson, is covered by Medicaid because her income falls just below the threshold. It's a very fine line for me personally that I'm skating under right now. And she's not alone. Across the country, access to health care and worry over its unpredictable costs are a huge business concern for farmers. And the stakes of going without medical care are particularly high in a dangerous business, says University of Vermont professor Shoshana Inwood. One of the reasons why I really wanted to do this research is because a lot of my focus has really been looking at what are the components to building a prosperous and vibrant farm population. And there's been a lot of interest in how do we address issues around a shrinking and aging farm population. Inwood is researching how health care affects farmers' abilities to grow their enterprises. 
funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, she's conducting a survey of nearly 3,000 farmers across the country. Inwood hadn't thought about health care in particular as a factor until she conducted an unrelated survey in 2007. It surveyed farmers working the land in areas facing population growth and development pressures. And we assumed when we got that survey back, we would get things like the cost of land, the cost of inputs, neighbors. The number one issue facing farmers was the cost of health insurance. They identified that as the biggest threat to their farm. She says prior strategies to building a robust farming industry have focused on access to land, capital, and changes to market infrastructure. But then you ask people, how many people know a farmer that has an injury or a farm family that has a chronic health issue or a mental health issue? And everybody's hand goes up. And that's the one issue that we never really talk about are some of those social needs that farm families have. But Hutchinson and Mendel are talking about it. Right now, health insurance is not among their highest expenses. But that all could change. If their income grows, Hutchinson would no longer be eligible for Medicaid. Or their subsidies could go away if health care policy changes. Both scenarios would have very real impacts on their farm business. So it's concerning now that, I mean, I just don't know how we could manage $800 a month when right now it ends up being like combined $60 a month. The whole situation gets even trickier if and when the couple were to get married. That act alone would bring their shared income above the Medicaid line, meaning they'd have to pay a significantly higher price for health insurance. And then there's kids someday. Something that I think about is when we have kids, in order to be able to afford the medical bills for that, as well as daycare, it is very likely that I will be stepping back from the farm. So it's something that I'm thinking about now is, would I get a part-time job or would I try to get a full-time job that I could get benefits at that would cover us all? That calculation is not unique. Nationally, more than half of farmers also work off the farm. Historically, it's been women who work two jobs, but that dynamic is changing as more women are getting into full-time farming. Hutchinson says if it weren't for the Affordable Care Act, she likely wouldn't have health insurance. I think that the subsidies have been crucial for us to have been able to start our farm and to be able to keep our personal costs ridiculously low for the first few years. Hutchinson says she knows many are in the same situation. She's on the leadership team of the National Young Farmers Coalition and says she knows many young farmers, either on Medicaid or highly subsidized insurance. And she says in a recent meeting, many farmers mentioned they're considering getting an off-farm job or even liquidating the business if the Affordable Care Act were to go away. That's Kathleen Masterson reporting. And let's stay with that theme for a minute. If the ACA was to go away and not be replaced, there are a series of impacts. As Rhode Island Public Radio's health reporter Kristen Gourlay reports, repeal threatens a new way of paying for patient care, and it may leave hospitals on the hook. Here's one thing hospitals could lose if the Affordable Care Act disappears. Patients who can pay. Hospitals like this one take care of anyone who walks or rolls through the emergency room doors. This is the busy ER at Rhode Island Hospital. Whether you have insurance or not, the ER will take care of you. If the Affordable Care Act is repealed, more people could come through those doors without insurance. People who got covered, for example, in states that expanded Medicaid, states like Rhode Island. And those Medicaid funds were a big deal, says Rachel Garfield with the Kaiser Family Foundation. It is fair to say that if the Medicaid expansion goes away wholesale and things go back to the way they were 
before this expansion was in place that a lot of those hospitals would see an increase in their uncompensated care costs or unpaid medical bills. There's still a gap, says Garfield, because Medicaid doesn't always cover the complete cost of care, but it's better than nothing. Now, if that Medicaid coverage goes away, hospitals could lose more than $160 billion nationwide, according to an American Hospital Association estimate. And there's another concern. Personally, I'm, I'm worried that uh, the progress we've made over the past five years w- would be threatened. Dr. Timothy Ferris with Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston says the ACA encouraged hospitals with financial incentives to experiment with how to take care of patients and save money. We have now more than 20 different programs, video visits, electronic consultation with specialists, um, home hospitalization programs for patients with diabetes and heart disease. And these programs, none of these programs are paid for in a fee-for-service system. And I would be worried that a repeal of the ACA would undermine our ability to invest in programs uh, and services for our patients that we are now investing in. Like many hospitals in New England, Mass General has signed agreements to create accountable care organizations, or ACOs. That's a kind of partnership with physicians and insurers with hopes of saving money. This is how they work. Insurers pay doctors for the quality of care they provide patients, not for every test and procedure like the typical system. Ferris knows those programs haven't paid off yet, but he says they need time to work out the kinks. One of the things that it's difficult for um, people outside of uh, healthcare to appreciate, uh, particularly politicians, is how long it takes to make significant improvements in the delivery of care. Because, you know, delivering care to patients, you have to be very careful when you make changes or risk harming patients. Many other hospitals across the country have invested in these new networks, often overhauling medical record systems, hiring staff, creating new services. Dennis Keefe, head of the hospital chain Care New England, says he worries about the future of his ACO, Integra. I think if there's a real change in direction away from these alternative payment models like ACOs, so we will be assuming risk now to care for a population we have invested enormously to really be successful in this area. We have, we have gone from zero premium dollars flowing through Integra to a billion dollars flowing through. These are seismic changes in the way hospitals do business, and most want the government to keep supporting these innovations. So do Rhode Island health officials who say they're part of a bigger movement to overhaul health care in the state. That's Rhode Island Public Radio's Kristen Gourlay reporting. Coming up, a new study about natural gas needs in the region and a look inside the regional partnership that's cut greenhouse gas emissions by more than a third in less than a decade. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Environmentalists are eyeing the new Trump administration with some skepticism. 
The president's choice to be head of the EPA, Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt, has been battling that agency for years, suing the EPA 14 times and working against efforts to cut carbon emissions. Republican Maine Senator Susan Collins told Maine Public Radio she wouldn't support his nomination because she said, his actions leave me with considerable doubts about whether his vision for the EPA is consistent with the agency's critical mission to protect human health and the environment. The reason that we need a national role to be played by EPA is that you can't just have a state-by-state approach to environmental regulation. While that may be true, some states have taken the lead on cutting greenhouse gases, especially here in the Northeast. Since 2009, nine states, all six in New England, plus Delaware, New York, and Maryland, have joined together in the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Our next guest says that it's been working, but the shifting political landscape means its future is complicated. Benjamin Starro is a reporter for Climate Wire from E&E News. Ben, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. First of all, explain what the Greenhouse Gas Initiative is and, and how it works. REGI, as uh, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative is known, it, it's a cap-and-trade system. And so it sets a cap on the amount of carbon that power plants can emit, and they buy credits for uh, emitting carbon under that cap. And the credits that they purchase go back to the states in the form of money for energy efficiency projects and other things like it. And, and has it worked? Has it been something that's been successful at what it's set out to do? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that Reggie is one of the most uh, effective existing programs in the country right now for, for tackling carbon emissions. There was a, a report that was put out by the Acadia Center recently, uh, which is an environmental group in Massachusetts, and, and they estimated that, that emissions have, have fallen by 37% since 2008. And, you, you know, the, the thing that's, that's really interesting about that is, is that prices really have not increased over that time. Actually, they found that they decreased. So there's a lot of success stories uh, to talk about when it comes to Reggie. What consumers pay for electricity is actually less, even as we're we're pretty substantially cutting carbon emissions. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we're probably going to get into this, but it's the, the, the great challenge facing Reggie, and it's not to say that there's not more work to be done with the power sector, but it's actually been so successful that people are starting to say now, okay, we've done a, a pretty good job as it relates to the power sector. What other areas of the economy do we need to talk about? If we can break down why this has been successful, does it have to do with these states coming together to reach this compact? Does it have to do with the very aggressive goals that Reggie set out? I mean, what's the reason, do you think, for the success? Yeah, that's a really a really great question. The first thing here, as to the collaboration point of this, I mean, the Northeast, it's not California. California can act on its own and on its own make major uh, national change. But if, say, uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, if they act on their own, even New York, it, it has it doesn't have the same level of, of impact. So part of the reason that this has been successful is that all of these states, sometimes with very different competing political priorities, have gotten together on this and, and agreed to work on it. So I think, number one, that's really important. I think number two, I mean, it just points to the change in our uh, 
in our uh, power sector. I mean, in New England, it's projected now that the last coal plant will close in 2021. And when you consider that, you know, not so long ago, 50% of of electricity in the United States came from coal, that's a pretty remarkable figure. So the real big question going forward from your story, though, is, is what happens now? So we've got a Trump administration incoming. Uh, I can imagine a lot of environmentalists are pointing to the success of Reggie and saying something like this greenhouse gas initiative is more important now than ever. What is this, What does it look like right now at the very beginning of a Trump administration that might be hostile to some uh, regulations? Well, I think you've really nailed it, the, the dynamic there. I think that environmentalists and Democrats more broadly in northeastern states really see Reggie as this is a model that has worked. We don't expect, from their point of view, to see much uh, climate progress in the coming years. So what do we do? The, the most immediate question is Reggie is reviewing its current cap. That is the, the cap on carbon emissions. And so what they need to do is decide how far that cap is going to fall. Environmentalists would like to see that cap fall by 5%. It doesn't look like it's going to go that far. Maryland, for instance, was uh, pretty upset when that proposal first got floated last year. The draft proposal out right now looks like they're going to maybe reduce that that cap by 2.5%. But beyond sort of that immediate question of what happens with the cap is, can you start to address carbon emissions through the, the transportation sector? And can you use the Reggie sort of formula to to do that. And, you know, it, it sounds funny to say, but reducing pollution from power plants is relatively easy when you compare it to transportation because a power plant is a one big thing that gives off a lot of emissions, whereas, you know, all of us drive cars. So the question is, is there the political will to really tackle the transportation question, which is, you know, now in the Reg- Reggie region, transportation is the largest source of emissions. Yeah, as you say in your story, the folks in the power generation world seem fairly comfortable with this initiative, this compact as it stands, but they don't want to, moving forward, continue to bear the brunt of all the regulations. So we have to look at this growing transportation sector. So what exactly would that look like, and and how does a state-by-state cooperation uh, happen around the transportation sector when the very nature of transportation is that people are, are moving around and driving and moving freight all across state lines. The simplest thing from a technical point of view would be some sort of carbon fee or carbon tax. That's also politically the hardest thing to do. So uh, whether, again, it comes back to this question of political will and are people up for it, and, and, you know, that's a, real, that's a real question when you look at, you know, there's states like uh, New Hampshire, which uh, the new governor there, Chris Sununu, has talked about pulling out of Reggie. And that's before we talk about transportation. Up in Vermont, Sue Minter lost her campaign to, to Phil Scott. And a big, you know, talking point in that campaign was, do you expand Reggie to, to um, include transportation? Phil Scott uh, he didn't like that idea, and, and and he won. So, you know, there are other things that could be done on public transportation and some investments there. 
Um, but I think, again, it's a question of political will. But I, again, another big problem is that all of these states in the Northeast have this aging transportation infrastructure. They're looking at plans to improve rail capacity, but it's very expensive. They're trying to rebuild old bridges and roads. And tolls or other revenues that come from the states are going to be plowed back into those fixes. It's going to be hard to have a conversation on one hand about transportation and its impact on climate change and the environment, while you're also having a really serious economic conversation about how we pay for just making sure the roads and bridges don't fall apart. You asked me earlier about cooperation between states. Well, in Massachusetts right now, there's a bill moving its way through the legislature that a third of lawmakers at this early stage in the session have already signed calling for a carbon tax. And so there's this question that people in Massachusetts are asking themselves now. It's a big lift, but let's say we get this done. Does it even help if Massachusetts moves on its own? Can we get New Hampshire to come? Can we get Connecticut to come? Can we get New York to come along? How much does just who's in the state house in these various states matter? Is is that really the, the driving force behind whether or not Reggie's going to continue and, and be successful in the future? I think it matters hugely. One of the reasons that, going again back to that question of what makes Reggie successful, is that the collaborative has succeeded in getting Republicans and Democrats uh, alike on board. Um, and so the question is, can that continue? I think there's a division here between the Chris Sununus and uh, the Paul LePages up in Maine, who've shown some outright hostility towards Reggie as it exists and are very unlikely to back an expansion in any way. Uh, versus, say, a, a Phil Scott in, in Vermont, who, as far as I'm aware, has no opposition to Reggie as it stands. He just doesn't want to see it expanded. Versus Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, who has a legally binding requirement to lower carbon emissions. Massachusetts passed a law in 2008 requiring that the state make pretty dramatic cuts in its carbon emissions. The Supreme Court of Massachusetts, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, then came back and said, you know, you guys aren't living up to this. This is a legally binding requirement. So in Massachusetts, they've got to get this done. And what people there say is, if if you don't include transportation in the equation, you're just not getting there. It's too big of a piece of the pie. You know, one of the stories, and I don't mean to go too much down the rabbit hole, but this is something that utility watchers uh, across the country are, are, are just really glued to, is New York is talking about sort of totally revamping the incentives uh, for their electric grid. Because today, uh, utilities make money by producing, you know, power. And in a world where you want to address climate change, maybe they should make money by being more efficient or uh, employing rooftop solar. And so the success of that initiative is really being watched by a lot of people in a lot of different parts of the country to see if New York can pull that off. Because if they could, that would be pretty transformative. Uh, a last thing for you, Ben, to loop back to the beginning of our conversation and this particular moment in history. What role does the federal government, uh, specifically this new Trump administration, play in in all of this? Uh, how much should the Northeast states be looking to the federal government or acting independently of whatever the federal government comes up with as far as climate change plans? Yeah, that, that's that's a real important question. And it goes back to Reggie's history. I mean, this 
this program was set up during the Bush administration, and it was set up because these states felt like the federal government wasn't doing enough to, to combat climate change. And so it's really independent of a lot of what is going on in Washington right now. For northeastern states that still care about this subject, it remains their best avenue. Now, there is a one way in which uh, the, the federal government could impede Reggie's progress. That is as it relates to transportation. And if that um, push to expand that really gathers some steam, the EPA nominee Scott Pruitt has uh, sort of suggested that he might take a look at California's uh, uh, CAFE standards, which govern uh, uh, car emissions. And those standards, you know, Massachusetts, for instance, has adopted those. And California has gotten a waiver from EPA uh, to have more stringent standards. And if that was suddenly revoked, that could really impede some of the sort of future progress in areas like transportation. Benjamin Starro is a reporter for Climate Wire from e e News. Thanks so much for joining us, Ben. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. As we heard, one key to New England's success in cutting greenhouse gas emissions is the move away from coal plants to renewables and cleaner burning fuels. That's meant to shift to natural gas as the region's dominant energy source. Electric utilities have been making the case for years that even as we rely more on wind and solar power here, there's a growing need for more natural gas infrastructure, pipelines to reduce constraints on capacity. But a new report from Synapse Energy Economics takes the opposing view. It says the need for gas is actually shrinking because of laws mandating more renewables and because of the high cost of building pipelines like the proposed Access Northeast plan. Pat Knight is one of the authors of this study. Pat, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. So first of all, this report goes against a lot of what we've heard from some people in the industry about the need for more natural gas infrastructure. So so, so make the case for us. Why is it that uh, New England doesn't need natural gas as much as uh, a lot of people, especially those who want to build pipelines, uh, say it does? The, the key piece is that there have been uh, laws passed and regulations enacted by uh, various agencies that will effectively drive down the use of natural gas for electricity generation in the early 2020s, uh, just a couple short years after the Access Northeast Pipeline uh, is built. And that's, that's, that's the focus of this study. It's understanding how they will continue to impact uh, the electric sector and, as a result, natural gas used uh, for producing electricity. And when you're talking about laws and regulations, you're talking about this region's desire to drive down its use of greenhouse gases uh, to make sure that it has more renewables as part of its portfolio. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So actually, there's there's a number of different policies that um, all sort of act independently. Two regulations and laws that are sort of most key to this analysis uh, came out of Massachusetts last year. Uh, the first is the 2016 Energy Bill. Uh, Massachusetts utilities are required to sign long-term contracts for offshore wind farms and for uh, essentially imports of either renewables or hydro from Canada or uh, northern New England or or New York. So uh, these are going to be tremendous amounts of energy um, that will be coming onto the system brand new uh, that are capable of displacing uh, natural gas and contribute in large part to the decrease in natural gas that we're, that we're modeling as part of this analysis. Uh, a second um, new law and regulation has been proposed by the Massachusetts DEP in December. Um, this is uh, one of the DEP's first regulations that's targeted at um, 
getting Massachusetts to its Global Warming Solutions Act goal. And as part of this, uh, there are regulations stipulating that emissions from natural gas generators within the state of Massachusetts have to decrease by 2.5% every single year. So this is a brand new emissions cap that's going to be going into effect um, within the next couple of years and will be becoming more and more stringent over time. You've got mandates in Massachusetts and Connecticut and many other states in New England uh, requiring utilities to procure all cost-effective energy efficiency. So these are things like uh, putting LEDs in or uh, putting better insulation in homes and businesses. And over time, uh, this will lead to uh, less use of electricity. New England states are among the most aggressive states in the nation at achieving cost-effective energy efficiency. Uh, and as a result, um, are some of the states with the lowest uh, bills. Now, you might hear New England states have very high electric rates. Uh, yes, that's true. Uh, but at the same time, in part because of such high uh, energy efficiency, residential consumers on average pay relatively low bills compared to many other uh, people around the country. I, I would guess that there'd be an, an awful lot of consumers out there listening to this who would disagree with you. Sure. I mean, uh, high electricity prices are, are always a concern and the lower the prices can, can be themselves, you know, that, that's always going to save people money. Uh, but what we need to think about when thinking about these big investments like Access Northeast is, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a lot of extra money for people to be paying for, and uh, we really need to make sure that we're we're doing our due diligence that this is the most cost effective option uh, for reducing people's rates and bills going forward. Now, that's so, a, I was just going to say another case that you make though is the overall cost of a pipeline itself. So this Access Northeast as a specific project, which you talk about in your report, it's coming with one price tag, but you're saying this is a much more costly endeavor than people are letting on. Sure. So um, in the press, a lot of times this pipeline is being quoted as something like $3 billion. I think the, the price that's currently on the website is $3.2 billion. The important thing to note about this price is that's just the upfront capital cost. Uh, this pipeline is going to cost money over time. It's it's basically financed over over 20 years. And over that entire time period, uh, there are going to be costs associated with operations and maintenance, uh, costs associated with depreciation, a cost associated with the rate of return that the companies expect to make off of this pipeline investment. And by the company's own calculations, this pipeline is going to cost half a billion dollars every year for 20 years. I, I have to ask you about some of the arguments that we've been hearing uh, for years from people who believe that there needs to be more natural gas capacity. And, and the number one that I have heard from people is that with the move to renewable sources of energy mandated by these states themselves adding new solar capacity, new wind capacity, as the wind does not blow or the sun does not shine, you need to have a reliable source of backup power that will be able to fuel the region at those times. So a need for natural gas, they say, is even greater as we get more solar and more wind online. My, my response to that is, yes, that's probably a concern. We're not anywhere close to that being a concern, and we don't get anywhere close to it being a concern in, in the time frame of the analysis that we're looking at. Um, we're not saying that no natural gas is going to be used in the future. Yes, we still expect it to be used, especially for balancing uh, variable, uh, variable renewables. Uh, but that's still a long ways off. And uh, when we're thinking about a pipeline investment that will be online in 2020, like Access Northeast, it's, it's sort of two different things to be thinking about. It's, it's not, uh, I, I wouldn't call it a major concern 
for reliability at, at the moment as, as regards to renewables. Well, at the moment, but you don't build a pipeline over overnight. And so yeah. these projects do, do take a bit of time. So the question is, will we have the ability to, to backfill our power needs for renewables with natural gas or whatever backup power source we have when we hopefully meet some of these renewable goals in the future? Sure. I mean, we're not going to meet these renewable goals overnight. Um, every state in uh, New England has a renewable portfolio standard. Um, that's another thing that's changed in the past 18 months. A couple of states have actually upgraded or basically made more stringent their renewable standards. Um, but it's not like tomorrow our system is going to be entirely all made out of renewables. It's it's going to happen over many years. And with good, uh, reasonable planning, we'll be able to balance the load, I'm sure. After your report came out, uh, we got a a response from the folks at Eversource, one of the, the, the big utilities here. They say the report is flawed and fails to recognize the energy challenges facing consumers and businesses in New England. They go on to say later that ISO New England, which is responsible for ensuring the stability of New England's power grid, is warning that the state of our natural gas infrastructure is a current and growing reliability risk. How do you respond to that? I would say that um, this is the first report, to my knowledge, that uh, accurately models these laws and regulations that are very new, the ones that came out in the past year and a half or so. Um, I have a great respect for ICE New England and their ability to uh, plan for reliability issues. And I think that they should take a really hard look at these new laws and regulations that have come out and see their impact on, um, on natural gas use and the water electric system. Pat, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Sure, absolutely. Pat Knight is a senior associate with Synapse Energy Economics. And he's one of the authors of the study, New England's Shrinking Need for Natural Gas. Coming up, ski jumping you've heard of. What about ski joring? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. This month, students from College of the Atlantic in Maine are trekking across ice-covered lakes and bushwhacking over frozen marshes on behalf of Acadia National Park. As Maine Public Radio's Jennifer Mitchell reports, they're on the trail of one of the park's most fearsome but adorable predators. Otters are one of the apex species that are at the top of the food chain. Okay, so it's not a bear or some kind of wildcat. It turns out that river otters, known for their penchant for sliding down hills and frolicking in the water, are a top predator species at Acadia National Park. Bruce Connery is a wildlife biologist with the Park Service. They can eat anything from um, invertebrates of all kinds, so things like dragonfly larvae and stuff like that. But they would prefer having things like crabs and freshwater mussels or saltwater um, mussels, or they would eat fish especially. Because they depend on so many other creatures for survival, otters are an important pulse check for the park. If they're doing well, that's likely good news for all the things below them on the food chain. I guess you'd call them as somewhat of an indicator species. If you see them and, they, and they're repeatedly there in that watershed, 
year after year, then you can get a pretty good idea that that system is functioning as you'd hope. For the next several weeks, about a dozen students will be looking for clues about how otters and their prey are faring. It's not as easy as it sounds. The process must be standardized, so the same process is followed each time the students go out. And then there's the fact that otters rarely show themselves. Students must learn to track them. They learn those techniques on the surface of a mostly frozen lake. You guys know what these are? Yep, in case you would go in. COA biology professor Steve Russell brandishes what looks like a short red jump rope with a spike on each handle. Right, you pull them apart and then jam them in and sort of crawl your way out of the ice. Yep. Yep. And the groaning, cracking ice of Breakneck Pond doesn't seem to trouble Russell in the slightest. He shows the students how to chisel a hole into the frozen surface every few feet to make sure the ice is thick enough, and he points out areas that should be avoided. The next time the students head out, Russell won't be there to help them. For some, like third-year student Siobhan Ricker, it's a whole new world. Are you guys nervous? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever walked out on a frozen lake before? I'm from California, so no. <laughs> I'm from a very warm place. So you don't, this is not something like, you didn't grow up ice fishing and no, you know, all that no, snowmobiling. I, I grew up in a city and, you know, 50 degrees and that was pretty much the standard. So the person walking behind Bruce, I would like to carry this backpack because there'll be a throw rope. The students troop single file toward a beaver lodge, one of the places otters like to hang out. And then the group sees some exciting telltale signs. See these slides? Long marks across the snow and ice where an otter has slid along on its belly. See how they make these little jumps and then and then jumps and then It seems like they're just playing and fiddling around, but actually that's just their normal behavior. It's not clear how many otters live in the park or what's going on that could shift the population one way or the other. That's because there hasn't been an official in-depth otter study done since the 1980s, says Bruce Connery with the Park Service. In the past, the species is generally thought to have been doing okay. Unfortunately, that's, that's sort of the wrong way to do it. That's sort of being reactive to a situation instead of being proactive. And the park, says Connery, has its hands full, reacting to potential threats like development and invasion of species. And that's one reason the help from COA is valuable. The survey has been taking place nearly every other year for the last six years or so. Only four data sets are available so far, but Connery says that's better than nothing. And there's another reason biologists might want to keep better tabs on otters, climate change. Stephen Russell says in winter, otters do most of their hunting in the cold water looking for fish. And so if water's warm, you know, could alter, you know, the their prey base. But like everything else with, uh, you know, shifting climate, you can come up with some predictions, but, um, you know, it remains to be seen. As for how the otters are really doing, it's hard to tell with so little data, but Bruce Connery says with future studies, the park hopes to get a better idea. The students will continue to track otters over the coming weeks until the end of March. The data will then be compiled and reviewed sometime in April. Three pads. There's there's one, two, four. Four pads, so they were going that way. That's Jennifer Mitchell reporting. You can see pictures of the Acadia otter trek at nextnewengland.org. The state of Connecticut is not known for its big mountains, but if you travel to the far northwest corner of the state, the Berkshires rise to nearly 2,400 feet in the tiny town of Salisbury. It's there you can find a little piece of Nordic sporting history.
For 91 years, Salisbury's been hosting Jump Fest, a celebration of ski jumping. Picture skiers in brightly colored suits flying off a snow-covered ramp on top of a 220-foot hill. But this isn't just for fun. The competition is a qualifier for the Junior Nationals, and most of the jumpers on the big hill are between 12 and 16, with at least a glimmer of Olympic glory in their minds. Next producer, Andrew Moraskin, paid a visit. Placed second last year in his group, 63 and a half meters, his last jump. Oh, nice jump. How'd you feel about your jump? Uh, I think I think I I am capable of doing better. I just have to uh, search for the <laughs> the resolve. I don't know. I think um, it was a solid jump and an improvement. So I'm I'm happy. Is it is it scarier to to jump farther? Is that is that the challenge that you have to get over? I mean, it's it's the safest jump is is the the best technically. Um, so the better your technique, the safer you're going to be. So and the better technique, the farther you're going to be. Your name, first and last name? Willie Hallahan. Yeah. Salisbury Winter Sports Association. Yeah. SWASA for short. I am one of the 20 directors, all volunteer directors of an all volunteer organization. We've been jumping for 91 years. It started back in 1926. A Norwegian immigrant named John Satry came to the United States. He came to move to Salisbury. And he was a ski jumper, a Nordic skier. He cross country skied and ski jumped, and he famously jumped off the edge of a barn roof just to show the locals what his sport was all about and everybody was so enthralled with it that they quickly built a jump and we've been jumping ever since. And what the people didn't know at the time was that he and his brothers who came after him were some of the very best Nordic skiers in the world. Their coming here and teaching children would have been comparable to, say, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig moving to Salisbury and teaching the kids how to play baseball. It was that influential. So have you had any Olympic athletes come out of Salisbury? We have. Uh, Roy Sherwood is uh, the most notable back in the mid-50s. He was a local boy. Uh, he overcame about a polio to become a ski jumper, and he represented the United States from Salisbury. On Jump Fest, I mean, the kids who come here for this weekend come from around the east, Lake Placid, Brattleboro, Hanover, Andover. Some of them will, will be in the Olympics. And now that women are able to compete in the Olympics, the last Olympics at Sochi, they were eligible for the first time. And we have very strong female jumping here. We like to tell people if they come to Jump Fest, they will see future Olympians. Maybe better than All right, good job. Hey, nice start. You did, but that's because you were up like a big old tree. But you actually had a pretty nice starting thing. You jumped hard. That was good. Are you are you a coach? No. <laughs> no. Just just giving advice. Are you are you a ski jumper? I was. Most of us here were at one point. But my my name is Larry Stone, and I'm from here originally. But I lived and worked in Lake Placid as a coach for many years. I was the U.S. men's coach and U.S. women's coach for a while. For the Olympic team. Yeah. Wow. What's the science of Ski jumping. It's very simple. It's the whole concept of flying and lift over drag. And it's turning your body and, and skis into a wing. And using the aerodynamics that speed give you and, and, and your physical force give you to 
to jump up into that position and, and ride the air like a wing. So, I mean, how, how long is this hill? Uh, this is a 30 meter hill, which means it's about 30 meters till it starts to flatten out. Whereas the big one over there is uh, about 70 meters before it starts to flatten out. How do you teach kids to get over their fear? Usually it's the opposite. You have to hold them back till they get the skills they need to. Everybody wants to go up in hill size before they really have the skills. Everybody wants to go big. So you, fear is, until you get to the bigger hills, it's not really a huge issue. And, and I'll tell you another thing that's pretty cool is that th this town has kept this sport alive here since since it started in the 30s here and in the 60s when I grew up and um, it's just an amazing group of people that that decided they loved this sport what goes through your mind right before you go down the slope? Uh, well, you can only keep a couple things in your mind. So um, just staying, staying loose and weight on both feet and just to have a good jump. Staying loose? You know, not, not tensing up or anything, yeah. I would think you would have to be pretty rigid in your, your squat or... Whatever. Yeah, yeah, somewhat, yep. But more of a mental thing yeah, to stay loose? Yeah, definitely. It's a big mental game. Yeah. And what goes through your head while you're flying through the air? Yeah, you know, your mind is pretty pretty clear going through the air um, if you're having a good jump. On the hill! Okay. You're from the volunteer ambulance? Yes, Volunteer 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 and are you here just in case? We are here, we are just, here in case. just in case. We do our annual standby. Have you been called to, to duty here before? Yes, we have, but usually it's for bystanders and not, and not participants. Yes. <laughs> there's, been less, there's been less instances of actual skiers yes, the than skiers there have been. The skiers know what they're doing. It's those that are those that are here to wish them well sometimes <laughs> trip or is it, is it inebriation or oh well no comment did you travel to come out here no we live locally first time so i give these brave souls a lot of credit for what they're doing we just moved to the area this year so i, I was told this was a big deal you look at these young people and people competing it's pretty exciting what else are you going to do on a cold winter day in, in the Berkshires, right? That was Next producer Andrea Moraskin reporting. We've got a slideshow of photos from Jump Fest on our website, nextnewengland.org. Now from ski jumping to ski joring. Never heard of it? Well, picture skiers being pulled across the snow by a horse, a dog, or a snowmobile. NHPR's Emily Corwin has more. 52-year-old Terry Moitozo kicks her boots into her downhill skis. Odd thing is, she's 30 miles from any mountain. Combining two things I love, skiing and horses. I'm excited, I'm excited. Moitozo doesn't need gravity to fly across the snow. That's what her horse Friday is for. 
and her buddy Nick Barishian, who's riding Friday. Yeah, he's my horse husband. My regular husband doesn't do the horse stuff, so you gotta, you gotta hire out. Here in Rochester, New Hampshire, Moitozo and others are learning equestrian ski joring. Other kinds of ski joring involve skiers pulled by sled dogs, poodles, even motorcycles. It looks like water skiing on snow, only with equestrian ski joring, there are obstacles. I'm the president of Northeast Ski Joring Association. Okay, who, uh, who else needs a harness? Jeff Smith is a competitive ski joerer. He travels to sanctioned races from Montana to Quebec to New Hampshire. Smith's wife rides the horse that pulls him 40 miles an hour over jumps eight feet high. They race for time. And then for every ring that you drop, or you don't carry across the finish line, they add two seconds to your raw score. And for every gate that you miss or jump that you don't take, it's five seconds added to your score. Before Terry Moitozo can try this thing out in the snow, she and 10 or so other newbies gather around Smith for instruction. In a chilly barn, horse and rider trot around Smith, who issues instructions. Ah, another good safety tip is not to let the, the rope get underneath the horse's tail. Duly warned, Moitozo and Friday head outside. All right, Friday, my friend. Are you ready, Terry? I'm ready. All right, go, go, go. Friday gallops ahead, pulling Moitozo along by a rope. They fly over three ski jumps. Past six rings, she reaches out to grab to the finish line. How'd it go? Awesome. That is, that is just fun. It's, it's water skiing on snow. It's the best. Oh my God, that's awesome. Not surprisingly, Terry Moitozo and Friday have already signed up for their first sanctioned ski joring race. And Moitozo says she's recruiting her friends. So Jeff Smith's efforts to grow this unusual sport may be gaining momentum after all. Emily Corwin reported that story for NPR back in 2014. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Susan Sharon, Ryan Karen King, and NPR in Washington. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. If you'd like to hear more of his music, go to toddmerrill.com. And thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston. Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.